0: Tonight, let's go to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, we're going to be tackling verses 1 through 8 this evening as we continue in our study of the book of Exodus. Exodus 19, 1 says, In the third month... So it's a time reference, third month since they left or was delivered out of Egypt. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount." And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant... Then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, once again it is our intention, our desire to dig into your word, to get to know you better through the revelation of Scripture. Lord, I pray that, Though our minds and bodies may be a bit fatigued this evening, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a a sharpness and a focus and the ability, Lord, to direct our attention towards you, that we might be able to worship you through the revelation of your word. Father, I pray and ask that you would help me to rightly divide your word and uh, help me to place it in the right context and to frame it for your people uh, to see it in full view this evening. Father, I pray and ask that you would remind us of your program on earth and what has come and what is to come and that we also might be reminded of our covenant with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know it's been a while since we have been in our study of Exodus And as it turns out, I think that is a good thing, and so if you remember, uh, the last time I preached out of Exodus was in June, and then we went to the convention, and then went on vacation, and then we came back, and we had 4th of July, no evening service, and picnic and no evening service, and then I gave you a report on the convention, and then we had Bible school and no evening service, and, and now we have a Sunday evening service, and then next Sunday is homecoming, and there is no evening service, and so While I love the consistency of being in it week in and week out, as we come to this text of Scripture, it is good for us to have this separation because this text could easily be overlooked as a a minor detail in the chronological record of Exodus when it in fact marks a major development in the program of God. What I'm saying is that sometimes you don't see the forest for the trees right and when our head is down and we're going through the scriptures sometimes it's easy for us to overlook this major transition in fact you can you can go to Colorado and you can cross the continental divide and not even realize it Uh, but if you're flying it over in an airplane or viewing it in a map you clearly can see it. And so I'm glad that it's been isolated for us in our schedule without an Exodus sermon the week before or an Exodus sermon the week after. And you may be wondering, well, what is it that makes this passage unique? I mean, it seems kind of mundane. It tells us that, I mean, there's no plague. There's no face-off with Pharaoh there's no Red Sea parting. There's no water out of a rock. There's no manna raining down from heaven. I mean, what's the big deal about this passage of Scripture? The answer to that is twofold. Uh, it, it records both a transition in dispensations and in covenants. And so there's a transition that is going on here at a macro level. Uh, as you think about it, the the revelation of scripture was completed in the end of the first century. And so up to that point, revelation is progressive, right? So... Adam gets some revelation, and Noah gets some revelation, and Abraham gets some revelation, and Jacob and Joseph, and Moses, and Samuel and Elijah, and John and Peter and Paul. And they are all getting pieces of the revelation. They are in the revelation, and it is still coming to them. God is still unfolding his inspired scripture to them. But then when it comes to the last book, the book of Revelation, it is closed out, it is complete, it is one finished document, if you will. There are benefits to you and I living past that period because from our vantage point, when we look at the Bible, we can see it in its completion and we have the ability to... See it in one panoramic frame, if you will. You know those panoramic pictures, you know, the old ones were really, really wide and they would take in the panoramic view of the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains or something like that and from that view, boy, you could see the different contours and you could see Patterns and eruptions, and you could see uh, the depressions that go with it. And and like the panoramic view of a mountain range, we can step back and look at Scripture and take in its peaks and its valleys and the shapes of it that we see as God had unfolded it. We we can we can trace the outline, if you will, from the plains into the foothills, and then up into the mountain peaks and the text that we have before us today stands out as a peak in the landscape of scripture and it's a significant one at that. But it could be missed trudging along verse by verse. And that's why I said I think it's good for us to have this break before and after. Because if we just had our heads down and we're plowing through, we could plow right through this and not realize that we're on one of these big peaks in Scripture as God was unfolding His revelation. Sure, we would notice the terrain, we'd say, oh, look at that, it's rocky or it's soil covered. We might notice the vegetation, oh, look, the grass looks different up here, it's tundra and it's not turf. And, and we might even notice some of the views and you say, you know, from here, boy, we can see some, some great things. But we need to step back and, and we need to take it in panorama. So that we can step out of this text of Scripture and we can look at it as it's framed in the totality of Scripture and see that there is a peak that we are standing on right here in verses 1 through 8 to fully appreciate it. And So first, it is the beginning of a new dispensation. As we look at God's de- dealing with mankind throughout history on earth, there are distinguishable administrations that are called by theologians or dispensations. And so what is a dispensation? It is a method in which God is dealing with people on the earth at that time. And so if you were to draw this out as mountain peaks, you could trace the outline of Scripture like the peaks of a mountain, and you would have seven of those peaks. The first dispensation, the first peak, would be innocence. And that is that God was administrating with man mankind in the beginning with Adam and Eve in innocence. There was no sin in the world, right? So God didn't need to say, Adam, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Why? Because there had been no sin. There was no cross. In fact, he didn't even have to say to Adam, obey the Ten Commandments. Why? Because there were no Ten Commandments. They had not sinned. They were in innocence. And so God is dealing with them in innocence. But as we know, Adam and Eve sinned which brought that dispensation to an end because of man's failure. And then we enter into a new dispensation, and it's called conscience. And now God is dealing with mankind after their conscience. Now they have a conscious awareness of sin, of wrongdoing, uh, of their uh, farness from righteousness. And so God is dealing with them in that period of time in conscience. And so from the fall of Adam until the flood, you don't find Ten Commandments. You don't find the gospel. You don't find any of those things. You just find God allowing man to live by his conscience. But that That dispensation comes to a failure because man's conscience gets seared and he gets ever farther into sin so that man's imagination is only sinful. And God says, I'm not going to deal with this any longer. I'm going to destroy the earth by a flood. And so he wipes out all the human population and then he starts over with Noah, and we enter into a new dispensation. This is the dispensation of human government. In Genesis chapter 9, God says to Noah, now if man sheds blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. And so now there is this idea of governing one another. Hey, we need to establish some civil authorities. There has to be some, some laws that are made. God doesn't give a specific law on that. There are basic tenets of right and wrong but now God ordains human government and that goes on for a while until that's a failure right because because mankind in their unification and governance decide that they're going to build this giant tower to the heavens and it's called the tower of Babel when God sees what they're doing and it is an offense to him then God confounds the languages and disperses the people Genesis chapter 11 And then in Genesis chapter 12 we find a new dispensation that arises. We would call this the dispensation of promise. And that is where God makes a promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless the whole world out of you. Those that curse you, I will curse. Those that bless you, I will bless. I will take you and I will multiply you. And so now when we read scripture from Genesis 12 until the end of Genesis, we find that the the focus is kind of like a microscope and it's not on the whole world and it's not on a nation. It's on one man and then it's on his son and then it's on his son and then it's on his sons and it's on one family for the rest of that and God is dealing with them based upon the promise that He has made to them that He's going to be their God and they will be His people. From... Abraham that that dispensation comes to an end after they are in Egypt in bondage God brings them out and he starts a new dispensation called the dispensation of the law and now he brings this family that has grown into a multitude a a nation of people and now he gives them this entire law code that they are to follow and he has civil laws and he has ceremonial laws and he has dietary laws and if they are going to operate in the good graces of God they've got to operate within the boundaries of those laws and God gives the detail of those laws uh, through Moses that dispensation goes from Moses and through the Old Testament. And as you know, God's people fail. They fail repeatedly and then they fail ultimately. And at the end of the Old Testament, there is no longer a unified nation of Israel. First it has split into two. Then it has been dispersed among the nations of the world. And its lands are inhabited by Gentiles and it is under Gentile control. And then the New Testament begins and there's a new dispensation. This new dispensation is called the dispensation of grace. And it is with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now God's dealing with man in a new way. He's no longer dealing with him in innocence or in conscience or under the law. Now he's going to deal with him in grace in that man couldn't keep the law. So God sends his son in the likeness of man who does keep the law to die for the sins of those who broke the law. And now you and I are the recipients of God's grace. What does God require of us? Faith. That's the requirement of this dispensation. And so you understand how God's administrating on the earth in different ways? There's one more dispensation to come. This dispensation of grace, this church age, is going to come to an end. It's going to fail. It doesn't fail because God is deficient. It fails because we are deficient. Every time, it is a failure on the part of God's people. So what's going to happen to the church? Well... According to Thessalonians, there's going to be a great apostasy. There's going to be a great falling away. Uh, The gospel that went with power in Acts chapter 2, now we find is not going to be going out in the same way. And it's going to get to the point where the church is this small remnant. And the Bible says that Christ is going to rapture the church out. There's going to be a seven-year interlude when God is dealing with Israel again. And then at the end of that seven years, a new dispensation begins. When Christ returns in person to set up his kingdom on the earth, it is called the millennial kingdom. And now instead of ruling from heaven, Christ is going to rule from Jerusalem. And God's going to administrate the world in a whole new way in which he's never administrated it before. Now, understand this, each of these dispensations have a rise and they have a fall. And each is built on the previous. It is comprehensive. And so, it began in innocence, and there's some of that left over when it goes to conscience. And there's some of that left over when it goes to human government. And there was some of that left over when it goes to promise. And there's some of that left over when it goes to law. And there's some of that that's left over when it goes into grace. And then there'll be some of those elements that are carried over into the millennial kingdom. But in each of those dispensations, God is administrating the world or humanity in a specific way. Today's text, Exodus 19, marks the beginning of the dispensation of the law. This is a major transition in your Bible. And so as you're reading through, you'll find the first dispensation comes to an end in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin, And then the next dispensation comes to an end in Genesis 6 when God floods the earth. And the next dispensation uh, begins in, in Genesis 9 with human government. And then the next one is marked out in Genesis 12 when God makes a promise to Abraham. And then this one begins here in Exodus 19. God's administration on the earth during this period requires his people to keep his laws, right? What marks a new dispensation? New requirements, new requirements. They're no longer just simply living on the promise made to Abraham. Now God's going to give them 10 commandments. Now God's going to give them another 603 laws that go along with it. And now they're going to be required to live by those laws. And so God's administrating in a new and different way. This dispensation that begins here in Exodus 19 will last approximately 1,400 years. That is, it goes from the time of Moses, 1,400 B.C., to the time of Christ at the beginning of A.D. For instance, if you have your Bible there, look at John chapter 1 with me, if you would. John chapter 1. And I just want to trace these out. I'm just trying to draw the panorama for you. I'm just trying to trace out some of these mountain peaks so that when you step back and look at it and you're reading Exodus 19, you're like, oh, okay, I see where that's at on the map. I see where that's at in the panoramic view. John 1.17 says this, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? Here we are in the Gospels, in the beginning of the New Testament, in the beginning of a new dispensation, and it's marking the close of one, and the beginning of the other. Hey, the law, the dispensation of the law came by Moses, but grace comes by Jesus Christ. Christ. Does that mean that there was no grace before? No, there has been grace since the beginning, but this is a dispensation of grace when God is dealing with people in a gracious way like he's never done before, and that is ushered in by Jesus Christ. Here's another reference to that uh, that dispensation change. Luke 16:16 16, 16 says, "The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist." Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and men press into it. And so there's another reference. It's saying, hey, look, something has transitioned here. There was some period that is identified with the law that went from Moses until the last prophet of the Old Testament, the first voice of the New Testament, John the Baptist. And from that time, now the kingdom of God is being preached. Some new administration is being preached. Remember, Jesus' message was the same as John's message in the beginning. Repent! For the kingdom of God is at hand. Hey, there's a new administration on hand. The law is changing in the land. You've got to be ready to make the transition. I love this. Romans 10:4 says it so clearly. It says, "For Christ is the end of the law. for righteousness to everyone that believeth." And so there we see, the law has a beginning. It begins in Exodus 19. In fact, uh, Exodus 20 is the first of the Ten Commandments. And then it ends with Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone... That believeth, And so as we come to Exodus 19, as we're approaching to this mountain peak, it's no accident that they're camped down there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God's about to meet them. I mean, in the next half of this chapter, God's presence descends on the mountain and ground starts shaking and the sky starts smoking and it looks like there's lightning on top of there and God's about to deal with his people. There is a major transition that is happening in Scripture here so that when we look back at Exodus 19, we say, oh, I know what's going on. God's God's about to initiate or implement a new dispensation. He's going to deal with these people in a new way. The The second part of what makes this unique is that it is also the beginning of a new covenant. It's the beginning of a new covenant. There is definitely overlap between the covenants and the dispensations. I mean... When I lay these out for you, I mean, you're going to say, well, that's an overlay. I mean, some of them sound like they're exactly the same. But they are different from each other in their purpose. A dispensation is an administration. It is how God is going to deal with the world. A covenant is a voluntary relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. And so as that dispensation comes in and God says, I'm going to deal with you in this way or I'm going to deal with the world in this way, then within that there is this covenant or this opportunity for a covenant where the people of God can make a covenant with God and they voluntarily make some promises to each other that unites them in this relationship. Our God is a covenant-making God. If you haven't picked up on that, haven't been paying attention, but if you read your Bible, what you find is that God has made some covenants with mankind. These divine human covenant relationships where God says, I'm going to do this, and I want you to do that. Or if you do this, I will do that. There's two types of covenants in the Bible. There's a conditional covenant, if-then. If you will do this, then I will do that. And then there's the unconditional covenant where God just says, I will do this, period. And so God has made multiple covenants with his people down through the ages. So again, I want us to see the panorama of the Bible. I want us to step back and say, okay what are some of these big peaks and valleys that we've been seeing? Some of them are dispensations and that's why we have these rises and falls. It's because of this dispensation change. And then others are because of these covenants that God is making with different people at different times. The six major covenants in the Bible are these, the Adamic covenant. And so it's just the name Adam with ick at the end of it. The Adamic covenant. Uh, that's the promise of a Savior. Genesis 3.15, God says that, that that the serpent will bruise the, the heel of the woman's seed and the seed will bruise its head. That, that's the first promise of a Savior. But also in that covenant is when God tells Adam the consequences for the sin. Hey, you're, you're going to labor by the sweat of your brow. Life's not going to be as easy as it was in innocence. In and so we have the Adamic covenant and then uh, the second major covenant is the noatic covenant as you remember God destroys the earth with a flood and he leaves only eight people it is Noah his sons and their wives and after the flood God makes a covenant with Noah and he he says Noah I, I promise that I'm never going to destroy the earth by flood again and the sign of that covenant was the rainbow. And the rainbow still stands today in the sky, not, not as an indication of the alphabet mafia, but uh, as an indication of the covenant that God made with Noah that he had not destroyed the earth by flood again. And then the third uh, covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. And so the Noadic Covenant was a general covenant. The Adamic Covenant was a general covenant. It was to all mankind. Now we get into the Abrahamic Covenant, and it is to a specific people group. It is to, in fact, a specific person. It is Abraham, who is the Hebrew. And it's going to be to Abraham's descendants and Abraham's prodigy. And so this covenant is a covenant where God says, Abraham, I've chosen you. I've chosen you to be my people And you're going to choose me if you choose me to be your God. And God promises an unconditional covenant that he's going to multiply Abraham like the sand of the sea, that he's going to make out of him a great nation and that through him and his descendants that he will bless all the nations of the world. That's unconditional. And God fulfilled every bit of that. Even though Abraham's line fails many times in between, God makes good on his covenant when Jesus comes through the line of Abraham. And now all the world must be saved through this Jewish descendant of Abraham named Jesus. That is how God fulfills the promise of that covenant that all the world will be blessed through Abraham. We move on from there and we actually find our text here with the fourth covenant. And that's the Mosaic covenant covenant that's the mosaic covenant and uh, we'll come back to this and look at the details of it. But the Mosaic Covenant has new commandments. It has new laws and it has new blessings. All of a sudden God's going to give them land. He promised them a piece of land. He's going to move them onto it. He promises them success. He promises them the ability to win against their enemies. There, there are elements to this covenant that are being uh, expanded and renewed and, and, and developed up through this covenant at this time. From here, there will be another covenant known as the Davidic covenant. And this is the covenant that God makes with David. And the features of this covenant are basically this: that there will be an everlasting throne uh, from David's dynasty. There will be an everlasting king. So there will be a king that comes from David's line that that reigns forever. And there will be an everlasting kingdom that will come. That's the Davidic covenant. By the way, that has not been fully fulfilled. And so it is going to be fully fulfilled. Christ is the everlasting king. And he will set up the everlasting kingdom when he comes even though there has not been an everlasting Davidic kingdom on earth since the time of David. And then the final covenant is the one that you and I are the most familiar with, and that is the New Covenant. It's the New Covenant. It's prophesied about in the Old Testament, specifically Jeremiah 30. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. You won't have to tell everybody to know God. They'll all know me because they will be my people. And it is a new covenant that is not just for Jew, but it is for Jew and Gentile. In fact, in this new covenant, God's removed that middle wall of partition or that middle wall of separation. And he has made out of us, both Jew and Gentile, one new man, one new person in Christ. That is, the new covenant is to all mankind. The promise of the new covenant is salvation from our sins. To everyone that believes, we enter into this covenant. And the promise on God's side of the covenant is that I will save you from the penalty and the punishment of our sins. And and, and the main character of the covenant is the Messiah. It is God the Son who became a man to go as our proxy to make a covenant with the Father. So that now we enter in not based upon what we have done, but based upon what our substitute has done. That is the new covenant. The new covenant has began because you and I are part of that new covenant. But it is also has further fulfillment with the people of Israel. There are features about that covenant that have some specific promises uh, to the descendants of Jacob. What I want you to do is notice with me here the contours of the covenant in Exodus 19. Back in our text, God initiates and sets the conditions for the covenant in verses 4 and 5. He says, you have seen that I oh, seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. And so notice God is the initiator. God is the one who has went in like an eagle, and he's picked them up out of Egypt, and he has delivered them to safety. And, and he's not brought them just to a destination. He's not just brought them to Sinai. He's brought them to himself. He, he wants to enter into a covenant with this people. You say, well, hasn't he made a covenant with him?" No, he made a covenant with Abraham. He renewed a covenant with Jacob and with Isaac. But there's not been a covenant with these people. These people were born in the um, bondage of Egypt. They've been living there for hundreds of years. Yes, there is an element of the Abrahamic covenant that they still practice and that still comes over. But God wants to make a new covenant with these people. And so God initiates it. And then he sets the conditions in verse 5. What's the conditions? It is a conditional covenant. Now, therefore, if... That's how it starts. God gives them the condition. If you will obey my voice indeed, in fact, in truth, in reality, and keep my covenant... Then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So here's the condition of the covenant. Obey my commands. Obey my commands. Keep my covenant. That is the condition that God is laying on these people. Now, he's getting ready to give them the commands. He's getting ready to outline that for him. But to enter into this covenant, he is setting the condition, and he's saying the condition is this. You obey what I say. The Israelites respond with a vow in verse 8. So God gives gives Moses the conditions. If my people will obey my word in all things and keep my covenant. The Bible says that Moses came, verse 7, and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded. What did he lay before him? The conditions of the covenant that God had just given to him. And all the people answered together. It was unanimous and said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. Now watch what Moses does. This is so important. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. That is the vow of the covenant. That is God saying, here's the condition. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be a peculiar people to me. You'll be a treasure to me. And when the people hear that, they say, we will keep all of your words. And Moses is the one who is going between God and the people. And he delivers God's word to the people. And he delivers the word's people back to God and a covenant is initiated in Exodus 19. Not only does the covenant have conditions, but the covenant also has benefits. The benefits of the covenant are laid out in verses 5 and 6. The condition is that you obey what God commands. The benefit, God says, is that you shall be a peculiar treasure to God above all people. Hey, get this, if you'll enter into a covenant with me, God says, God says, I, I, I will treasure you. you. You will be like the, uh, the pearl of great price. You'll be like the, the elusive diamond that everyone is searching for. You will be the crowning jewel of my work on earth. Oh, and my friends, they experienced that for a while. They knew what it was to be the peculiar treasure of God. God didn't choose them, he said, because they were the greatest or the mightiest or the strongest. But he chose them because he wanted to display his glory. And he took this little band of refugees. And he goes in and he gives them a land that is rich and fertile and productive. And they become the envy of the world. And this small little kingdom rises to become a zenith among the nations. Where they are king, King David and King Solomon become legendary. Where their wealth is so excessive that silver is counted as stones. I'm telling you. The benefits of the covenant that God is making with his people are inestimable. He goes on and he says, you will be a kingdom of priests to me. What What is the indication of that what is that well we understand that within the nation of Israel there is a tribe of priests it's the Levites and they are the ones who act as the priests for the rest of the nation but but what God is saying is you're going to hold a special place in my program that you're going to have an access to me that nobody else has and think about it At this period in time, under this covenant, under this dispensation, if anybody wants to come to God, they've got to come through Israel. They've got to become proselytes. They have to adopt the Jewish religion. They have to come through this nation. And for over a millennia, that was God's program on earth. Israel was God's light to the world. It was his city on a hill. It was his shining example. It was his entry point. And by the way, many did come. Many did come through the witness of Israel until Israel lost their witness because they wanted to be like the rest of the world. The third benefit that is outlined there is, he says, you will be a holy nation. You'll be a holy nation. Holiness is at the heart of God. Our God is a holy God. He is so holy that he cannot behold sin. He is set apart because of his holiness. And we are separated from Him because of our sin. But God says that if you enter into this covenant and you keep my commandments, then it is going to make you a holy nation, one with which I can have fellowship with and I can walk among you and I can commune with you in a way that I cannot do it with other peoples because they are defiled in their sin. Oh man, I'm telling you, this is a good deal. This covenant, anytime God offers to make a covenant, it, is, it, it would behoove you to enter into the covenant with God. And so obviously the people of Israel recognize that. Well, here's the requirement. We keep God's commands. Well, he's God. I mean, first and foremost, he has the authority to tell us to do whatever he wants to do. But secondly, we know God. And we know that He's the God who made a promise to our forefather Abraham and that God has made good on that promise and that He has blessed him. And God has just proved His love for us by delivering us from the most dreadful power in all the world and He is bringing us in and He's promised us a land. So I know that whatever He commands us to do is going to be for our good. And so they wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, unanimously... Agree to enter into this covenant with God. And thus, the course of Israel is charted. The trajectory is set for the Jewish people from this point forward. Everything about them is going to be defined by this covenant. So that when they fulfill their part, God fulfills His part. But when they fail on their part, then God also has to deal with them in their failure. And this sets the tone for everything else that happens to the nation of Israel and the people of Jacob from here to the end of the Old Testament. Although we are not part of the Mosaic Covenant, we, we too are a covenant, in a covenant with God. It's yes, interesting and all, but, but, but how does it apply to me, Pastor? Well, it applies to you in the very best way. You see, because as good as the Mosaic Covenant was, there was a better one. You can read all about it in Hebrews... And it said if the Old Covenant would have been good enough to save them and to keep them, then the Old Covenant would have remained. But the Old Covenant was faulty because the people couldn't hold up their end. And so God made a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant that is in the blood of His own Son who can never fail and who will always keep up His end of the covenant. And you and I enter it by faith through His substitutionary atonement so that we receive all of the benefits Of this new covenant. We are in a covenant with God. We are part of the new covenant in Christ. And this new covenant charts our course. And it sets our trajectory. And it defines us as a people just as much as the Mosaic covenant defined the Jews. The new covenant is to define you and I as Christians. It is supposed to be one of the dynamic features that sets us apart from everybody else in the world. This covenant that we have with God is, in some ways, like those dispensations, comprehensive. While they are distinct and they are different, they are built upon one another. And some of those principles carry over into the new ones and for you and I what we can do is we can look back at this mosaic covenant and we can learn some things from their successes and their failures and we can understand how that fits into our relationship with God through this new covenant let's learn from those who've gone before us let's live up to our covenant relationship with God there there are certain things That you and I just can't go along with in this world. Because we're in a covenant relationship with God. Let me tell you something. If you want to think about this in the most practical way. If you want to have a modern equivocation to a covenant. It is the marriage. That's based on the biblical covenant. It is where two people. Voluntarily make some binding promises together and they vow and pledge their fidelity to one another. Forsaking all others, I choose you. Do you understand that's the essence of the covenants in the Bible? When God came to Abraham, God says, Abraham, I'm choosing you. Will you choose me? And Abraham chose him to be his God and God chose him to be his Let me tell you something, that covenant relationship that you and I have in marriage, it, it, it keeps us from going along with certain things, doesn't it? Why? Because there's a commitment there. That we have made when we entered into this covenant, when we says, you know what, I'm not on the market anymore. I'm not looking for any other prospective girlfriends or boyfriends. I have found the one that I'm going to bind my life to. It's going to define me. It's going to set the course for the rest of my life. It's going to set the trajectory for my life. I'm telling you, friend, that's the idea of this new covenant that we have in Christ with God, that it is a covenant relationship where he chose us and we chose him and we have pledged our fidelity to him. And so there's going to be some things in the world that come along that wants to flirt with the church and say, come on, come on. You you can invite this in. You can adopt this. You can accept this policy. You can ease that standard. And I'm telling you, because of our covenant with God, we've got to say, no. If I do that, if I accept that, if I affirm that, then I am in violation of my covenant with the one that I love. You see, he will never forsake us. And so let's never forsake him. Let's echo the words that the people of Israel spoke in Exodus 19, verse 8, when they vowed all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Is that too much to ask? Is that too much to ask for us to simply say, I'll do everything that God has said for me to do? Because I know his track record. I know his character. And I know that he says only those things are right and true and good for me. So I will never go wrong when I do what he has said for me to do. Where I go wrong is where Israel went wrong, and that's when we depart from what he said. Would you bow with me? As we close our eyes for just a moment, we'll give each other a little bit of privacy. Shut the world out around us. Focus only on God and what he said to us through his word. Oh, Christian, you are blessed. You are blessed beyond measure to be in a covenant relationship with God. Do you know how blessed we are to be born in a land, to be born in a region where the gospel flows so freely? We didn't have to break out of the prison of some false pantheistic religion to get to the one true God. Many of us were born with him in our home, with parents and grandparents who knew him and talked about him and introduced us to him. And what he offers to us in covenant relationship far exceeds what he asks from us. And so may we, like these people in Israel, make a simple pledge. Lord, I'll do all that you have said to do. To the best of my ability, I will do all that you've said for me to do. I will keep your covenant. I will remain faithful to you till the day that I die. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray and ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to obey your word, to keep our commitment to you, to live faithfully to you, to never be drawn away by the flirtations of the world and the temptations of sin. Father, I pray that as this world grows ever darker, I pray that our light would grow ever brighter. And I pray and ask, Lord, that you would help your covenant people to go out And to shine the light wherever they go. And that they might bring more people into covenant with you. For truly this is how you are administrating the world right now. It is no longer that you demand that people come through Israel. It is that you have sent the church into all the world. To go reap the harvest of souls. It is ripe and ready. Lord help us to be faithful in this. I pray in Jesus name. Amen. IF YOU would-